If you would grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. I'd love for you to follow along uh, as you see uh, this story unfold. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. We're coming back into a series we started uh, back in September. So if you were with us in the fall, uh, all the way through the fall, we journeyed through this together and then we took a pause for a a variety of different things. And um, now we're jumping back in, and uh, we'll be basically in this series with just a couple of small things uh, through the end of the summer, and so we'll be kind of working our way uh, back through Exodus. So I can't catch you all the way up. There's too much to catch up, uh, so I'm just going to give you a brief narrative. If you're not familiar with the narrative of Exodus, this will at least get you uh, to where we are right now. So the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, were enslaved by Egypt. That's how we start the book of Exodus. They cry out to God. And God answers their prayer through Moses. So he calls Moses. Moses confronts Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and demands the release, the deliverance of the people of God. And through a series of what we call plagues, but were really judgments on the idols, the the false gods of Egypt, God delivered Israel from Egypt. And so uh, when we stopped in our narrative, uh, Israel had just left Egypt. They were, uh, as they were leaving, Egypt pursued them and they were led by God to the edge of the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea, brought Israel over, and then as Egypt sought to follow them, the Red Sea collapsed on them and he delivered his people. And uh, they had the very first worship song in the Bible. Exodus chapter 15 is the very first worship song in the Bible. They were singing this worship song and that's where we left off. And so that's where we're gonna pick up today. As we went through that, there were a couple principles that I want to remind you of that are going to be really important, not just for the first part, uh, but as we continue on in the series. The first principle is this, that um, this story is actually our story. Now, it's not that it's only our story. Uh, it's it's a, also a sto- historical story. This is uh, something that truly happened with a real historical people in a real historical narrative. But this is recorded for us because God stepped in in a way that would become uh, kind of the marker of the way that God works in people's lives. And so as we read this story, we won't, don't just read it as someone who's looking back at history 3,000 years later, but as someone who is also experiencing the work of God in very similar ways in our own lives. So uh, we want to constantly remember this story is our story. Another principle is that God is making all things new, not making all new things. We talked about that quite a bit in the fall. Uh, This promise from the end of the book of Revelation is God shows up and he declares, behold, I am making all things new. But in our heads, many of us would prefer for God to make all new things. Because getting something new, that happens in in an instant. But making new things, the restoration process, the uh, slow work of taking something broken and making it whole, that takes time and effort, and it doesn't always go the way that we want it to. And yet that's the way that God almost exclusively works. He's making all things new. Very rarely is he just making new things. Sometimes he does, but the vast majority of the time, he's slowly restoring, making all things new. And then right before uh, the Israelites left Egypt, there was a final statement that God made uh, that's going to become a third principle that we're going to see throughout. So the first principle is that this is our story. The, The second principle is that God is making all things new. 
And the third principle is found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. God's speaking to Moses, and as he gets ready to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land, he says to Moses, I'm not going to take you directly to the promised land, even though that way is shorter, because you're not ready yet. Your people are not ready for battle yet. And so I'm going to lead you the long way around so that I can form you. And what you're going to see is from the time that they leave the the borders of Egypt till the time they get to the edge of the promised land, what God is going to do is lead them through an intentional formational process as he shapes his people, as he builds his people. And so the principle we're going to come back to again and again is that God is not just interested in freedom, he's interested in formation. And that's important for us to get because a lot of us subconsciously have bought into uh, this message that what God is primarily interested in is saving you from your sins. And, And that's true. God is interested in saving you from your sins, but he's not just interested in freeing you from the bondage of sin. He's actually interested in forming you into the image of Christ. So this, this formational process as God makes us new people is not just one that we wait for on uh, the other side of eternity, but is one that God begins in us now. God is not just interested in our freedom, he's also interested in our formation. And so with those three things in mind, this story is our story, God is making all things new, and he's not just interested in freedom, but formation, I want you to listen to the end of Exodus chapter 15. We're going to kind of dip our toe in today and then start to uh, take off and running next week. And so Michael's going to come and read for us uh, Exodus 13, 22 to 27. Then Moses led Israel to journey away from the Red Sea. They went out to the wilderness of Shur, walked for three days into the wilderness, and found no water. Then they came to Marah, but they were unable to drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. That is why its name is Marah. So the people murmured against Moses, saying, What can we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When Moses threw it into the water, the water became safe to drink. There the Lord made for them a binding ordinance, and there he tested them. He said, If you will diligently obey the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and pay attention to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, then all the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians I will not bring on you, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we open your word, would you speak to our hearts and our spirits? Would you do the work that only you can do by your spirit and your power? May the words that come from my flesh and my strength fall to the ground and be forgotten. But may the words that you are speaking by your spirit, may they penetrate our hearts and our minds, our souls that you would shape us and form us according to your image and your desire, that we would be more like you. And so, Jesus, do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So what I want to look at uh, in this short little passage is just kind of a jumping back into the formational process. What's God doing in his people? And so we're going to see first a crisis that they experience, and we're going to talk about how that relates to us. So uh, when we face crisis, what do we do? Well, just like the Israelites, the second thing is uh, grumble. We tend to be grumblers just as they were grumblers. And so uh, we'll look at crisis, we'll look at grumbling, and then ultimately healing. God declares himself to be healer. What does that mean for them? What does that mean for us? So crisis, grumbling, and healing. So as we pick up, you need to remember what has just happened. I tend to picture Exodus like a a feature film with all kinds of different uh, dramatic moving parts happening. So uh, I know it was like eight weeks ago when we looked at the song at the beginning of Exodus chapter 15. But remember, we're coming right out of that song. So they've come to the other side of the Red Sea. The sea has collapsed on the Egyptians. And and you can kind of picture that the, the film shot is coming back. You see the entire nation of Israel. They're dancing around and they're singing and in the background you see the Red Sea and you see like chariot wheels floating you know and you see like uh, horses like snorting and whatever they're doing you know the whole the whole thing's kind of back there and uh, and the Israelite people are doing this dance I'm picturing them with like 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 tambourines and cymbals and they're dancing around because remember their, their declaration is the Lord has triumphed gloriously he's thrown the horse and rider into the sea and so you see this like this dancing and singing and, and I'm picturing the camera kind of move from the Red Sea across this entire nation of Israel, singing and dancing, and then over to that desert that's beyond them for as far as you can see. And you kind of picture them, the Lord has triumphed gloriously, thrown the horse and rider into the sea, and then you see the pan happen, and everything just kind of fades out, and you just hear the whole nation together just go, like now what? Like we got here, that's great, but now what? And what they see in front of them is not promised land. It's desert. Arid, lifeless, awful desert. And for a lot of us, we, like Israel, have believed that on the other side of the Red Sea, after deliverance, comes promised land. But it's interesting, that's not ever what God promised us. Justin and I uh, didn't talk after the early part of this week, so I knew that he was going to share a story. I knew a little bit about his story. I didn't know what kind of week he was going to have, but I could have projected because it happens to a lot of people who get baptized. And that after, after that big celebration, after quite literally coming out of the Red Sea, it's one of the imagery, that, some of the imagery that's used in the scriptures about baptism, there's often a desert that happens next. And Justin had a tough week. And some of you other guys who are baptized, you may have had tough weeks. Some of you remember times when you've had a spiritual high or a spiritual experience where God's met you in a powerful way and, and you just feel like on top of the world. And within days, it just feels like, what just happened? Like, where did all that go? The desert is often our experience long prior to the promised land. The promised land is way out there. It's at the end of eternity. And there will be beautiful oasis along the way. But for many of us, we have a lot of desert experience. And that's what happened to the Israelites. So what do they do? Well, they do what we do. They started walking, right? They're like, well, if God God could drown the entire Egyptian army, if he could release us from slavery and get us out of here, 
surely that same God can bring us water, right? So they just start walking. Like, okay, here we go. A couple hundred thousand people, the numbers are debated, but a massive group of people, uh, multi-generational from the youngest to the oldest, they just start walking and they start looking. And day one, they find no water at all. But I picture them uh, engaged day one, right? They're like, they're going, they're moving. By, by day two, they're trudging a little slower and they're looking and they're getting a little bit more frustrated. By the time day three happens, I, so I don't know about you, um, I, if you have children, I have, I have kids, I have boys uh, mostly, I have a, an older girl and three boys, and my boys, they don't go 90 minutes without a snack, and if they do, watch out, right? Like, I'm not talking about, like, water that you need to live, I'm talking about, like, you know, sugar of some kind, you know, something, like, I just need something, you know? And if they go, like, two hours, oh, man, they're angry. So just picture what this nation was like three days into their water fast, right? Like they've had nothing. Like there, there, had, to be, uh, there had to be screaming and crying and yelling. And at the very least, everybody's hangry at this point, right? It's just, it's bad. And so they, they're, they're on day three, they're walking. And sure enough, they see water in front of them. And so I'm, I'm sure a group of them rush ahead and somebody grabs some water and drinks the water. The water's bitter. Now, in English, bitter is a flavor word. So you, uh, you hear that and maybe you're thinking like, well, I really wanted the pomegranate sparkling water and this isn't, like, it's not that. That's not what we're talking about. This is like, um, this is stagnant, like it will kill you water. Like, I, we can't drink this water. And so now, the God of the universe has led them out of slavery, has freed them, has totally done this incredible work of deliverance, has led them for three days without showing them water. Finally, they get to water, and the water will kill them. Like, they had to be so, like, what, what do you do? What do you do when on the other side of deliverance, it's not the joy of the promised land, but it's the frustration of the desert? How do you respond? I remember early in my journey, um, as we first moved to York, I was learning to follow Jesus for the first time. Um, Amanda and I got married soon after that. We were plugging into church, plugging into ministry. Uh, we were working. Like, it was good. Everything was really, really good. And I felt like, like, Jesus has done this incredible work. Like, all, everything should be great. Now, those of you who are married probably know, know this already, but I didn't know this. I thought marriage would be perfect. Some of you didn't laugh or some of you who are like beside your spouse who you know you're going to get an elbow. So you're just like, I'm just not messing, right? Like, yeah, it turns out it's maybe not as easy as it was cracked up to be. Like, actually, this is work, right? And, and following Jesus, like, I thought, like, I had this thing. Like, I'm excited because Jesus has saved me. He's done this work in my life. There were, there were tangible, like, like, measurable things that were different for me. And so I was like, I'm good. And then all of a sudden, there's this stuff that I just can't beat. Like, I just can't seem to deal with it. And, like, my relationships aren't going the way they're supposed to. And I'm getting frustrated. In the Alliance, this is called a crisis of sanctification. That's a fancy word, a fancy phrase. Basically, what it means is we reach a point sometime after that Red Sea experience, that point where we're saved by the grace of Jesus, where we recognize, I just can't do it on my own. I just don't have it in me. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough of a will. 
I, I don't have all of the capacity and the gifting. Like, I just can't do this. Because most of us subconsciously, we, most of us wouldn't say it out loud, but subconsciously we know we can't save ourselves from our sin. We need God to do that. But when he does, we think, good, you've done the part that I can't do, now I got it. But we don't got it. And that's what the Israelites thought. Like, he's done all of the hard, he's delivered them from Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. This oppressing power has been destroyed, and now they're good, except they're not. So what do they do when they hit this crisis moment? Well, they do what you and I would do. They grumble. They're just frustrated, like angry with God. Like, what? why is this happening? Why is this working the way it's working? There, there, there's a... Um, a a, a, a theologian who called this like just a, a, a low-level state of negativity, which is just, it sounds like Twitter to me, basically. So I think like uh, pretty much Israel was just like a Twitter place. Yeah, so they were just, they were just angry at everything. Like everybody, no matter what anybody says, they're just frustrated with it. They're combated about everything. Like just, they're just angry. And so Moses cries out to God. This is the same phrase that's used again and again to, uh, to when the Israelites are crying out to God. Moses cries out to God. And God shows him a tree. In the ESV, if you're reading in our pew Bibles, that says log, but there's probably a note in there that says actually the words tree. That's a better translation. It, it, it seems that Moses um, either cut off or uprooted a little tree and threw this tree into the water. And the water that was bitter became sweet. Now, like theologians tend to do, there's a big argument, like, was there a specific tree, and did that have medicinal qualities, and did it change the, the state of the water? And uh, the, the writers of the Bible, or the original readers of the Bible, would, would not have even understood that question. Like, it's just a weird thing to them. Because if, let's just say, there was a specific tree that had spe specific scientific properties that would change the water, the fact that it was there and God told Moses to do it is miraculous enough. Like, they wouldn't be asking the question. It's like, God did something miraculous. That's all they would have cared about. God took the bitter water and he made it sweet. And then there's this fascinating statement that God makes. This is in verse 26. He says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Now the first thing we have to deal with is the fact that that sentence starts with if. For all of Exodus up until now, Exodus 1 to 14, God has made all kinds of proclamations over Israel. God has said all kinds of interactions with his people, and they never start with if. They're declarations. I will free you. I will come to you. I have heard you. I will respond to you. But now, God says, if you do these things, then I will do these things. What's the deal? Well, freedom was given to them as a gift that God was doing on their behalf. He was doing their work and his work. He was doing everything. He was asking nothing of them, just as he asks nothing of us. He was coming and freeing them. Deliverance was wholly the work of God. 
Now, as he comes back to them and he says, I am now in the midst of your crisis going to begin to shape you and form you, it's still his work. He's still the one who's doing the work. But what he says is, if you will align with me, I'm inviting you to let me do that work in you. And that's vitally important because we miss the idea that we can choose to be shaped by God or not be shaped by God. God, in his grace and in his love for us, will let us be saved and miserable. He'll let us stay on the other side of the Red Sea, looking around for water for the rest of our lives if that's what we want. Or we can choose to align ourselves with him and begin to be shaped according to his ways. And it's interesting the way that he says it, because he doesn't just say, if you do what I tell you to do. He says, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, if you do what is right in his eyes, if you give ear to his commandments, and if you keep all of his statutes. So this is a holistic alignment. What he's saying is, it, it, not if you, if you keep the checklist, if you do all the do's and don't do all the don'ts. But he says, if you will align yourself with me, if you will say, I'm with you no matter what you call me to do, no matter what you tell me to do, I'm fully and completely submitted to you. If you do that, I will form you, I will shape you, I will keep you from the diseases of the Egyptians. He's still the one doing the work, but he's inviting us into the process. And then he says, for I am the Lord, your healer. Now, that will become a mantra for who God is, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God in the Old Testament healed his people through his prophets, sometimes through divine action. Uh, he, he would often be a God of healing. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, that's intensified. Jesus is constantly healing people. Like, I don't know if you've ever been around when somebody gets healed, but when, when somebody's healed like, and, and it's tangible and visible right then, like, it's a party. Like, it's ex like when somebody comes and they have a, some kind of issue, a physical issue or some kind of an issue, and we pray over them and God does something, like, it's just like excitement overwhelms everybody. Like, we were, I was at a thing a couple years ago. There's a group of us praying over a lady who had a back problem. She hadn't been able to walk and move right for years, for several years. And she had come asking for prayer. There was a group of us praying over her. And as we were praying over her, she felt this like thing happen and she like straightened up and I, I, I don't know what happened. I'm just kind of standing back like, what, what's going on? And all of a sudden, she starts running around the room, just like laps, you know, she's just going, she's yelling. And then all the people who know her are yelling with her. And it's just like this big, like picture everywhere Jesus went, it was like that. Like everywhere Jesus goes, it's like another party broke out, like a party over here, a party over there, right? It's like everywhere because everywhere Jesus goes, he's healing these people. The first time in the Bible that God declares himself to be healer is Exodus chapter 15, when he heals water. What's going on with that? Water becomes this precursor to all the healing that's po that, that points to the glory of Jesus, that points to the glory of God, because water was what the Israelites realized they needed in the desert. See, for, for many of us, the healing that we need most of all, the, the core healing that we need, apart from the desert, we don't really know that we need it. 
I'm not talking about physical healing. Obviously, if there's physical healing, you know that and you're longing for that. But the core healing, the, the, real, the real difficult healings, the heart and spirit healings, we tend to cover over those as long as the world's busy enough, as long as there's enough going on, as long as we can generate enough distraction. And it's not till we hit the desert that we know that we really need that kind of healing. The Israelites, after three days without water, needed water, needed water. And God healed that water. And then interestingly enough, verse 27, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So God, after three days with no water, doesn't just heal this water, but leads them to this beautiful oasis of plenty with lots of water. Because see, here's the thing. God heals in layers. And so as he is healing their, their bodies and their spirits and their souls, their emotions, he leads them to a place of plenty that's also temporary. Because next week, we're going to read, they're going to keep walking. Like they don't stay at Elim. They're there for a very short period of time, and then they keep going. Because this is not the promised land. This is not the end of the journey. This is only a beautiful step along the way. For many of us, we come to God wanting the end, when what's happening is he's just giving us another layer. This story is our story. And from Elim, they're gonna find themselves longing for bread, and then they're gonna find themselves longing for water again, and then sooner or later they're gonna have enough of bread and they're gonna want meat, right? Just like us, that's the way it works. God meets them, God heals them, he declares himself to be healer, and interestingly, he doesn't declare himself to be healer of a person, he declares himself to be healer of this entire community. The first time God uses that title, healer, I am the Lord, your healer, he's talking to the community. He's not talking to a person. Because here's what happens. Remember that, that is at the end of his statement. If you listen to the voice of the Lord, do what is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, uh, and keep all of his statutes. If you align yourself with me, then I am the Lord, your healer. When we become a community of people, who are willing to align ourselves behind the Lord, regardless of what we believe about all the exterior stuff, regardless about all the frustrations we might have with one another, regardless about all the frustrations we have with God, when we're willing to align ourselves behind him, what God does is he brings healing to a community of people. He doesn't just heal individual people. He heals a, a community. He creates a community. And then that community released into the larger community, brings healing into that community. This is the way God works. And I'm not sure that there's been a time, at least in recent history, where the world around us more desperately needs the church to be a healed community that is bringing healing. The invitation for us is that as we gather together, whether in these larger gatherings or smaller gatherings, that those places would be places of healing so that we would take that healing to the world around us, so that we would be a healed community 
bringing healing to the larger community. And so today, I want us to respond by enacting, by stepping into the story. Remember, we started by saying the story is our story. And so as we tell the story in a variety of different symbols and actions, I want us to relive that story so that we would step out into the world just as God has invited the people of Israel and us to step out into the world. Because here's, here, here's the thing that we so often miss. The blessing of God is not intended for you. I, I don't mean that you're not the recipient of it. You are. He loves you and he's, he's going to bless you. He wants to bless you. But it's not for you. Blessing is always intended to flow through you to the world. So when God heals, his healing is not so that you would feel better. His healing is so that you would be an agent of reconciliation and peace and healing in the world around you. When God gives blessing to you, it's because he wants you to be a blessing. It was from the very beginning as he called Abram. And he said, I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing to all nations. That same principle is still true for us. And so as we gather together and we reenact the story, we're going to, in just a minute, tell one another, this is the broken body of Jesus. He came and broke his body for you. This is the blood of Jesus that covers over every sin and cleanses you. Yes, that's for you. But it isn't intended to stay with you. It's intended that you and I would live in a world where I no longer have to prove myself I no longer have to be good enough because I'm identified by him alone. And so when I walk into an environment of people who need to encounter him, all of those barriers are broken down because I can receive it from him. I can give it freely because I've already received it. And so I'm going to invite you to come and to hear the story again. And this is a story of one of the dozens and dozens of applications that is both salvation and sanctification, being made holy. So you're going to come and you're going to hear the body of Jesus has been broken for you, the blood of Jesus has been shed for you, that you would be saved. He's lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death that you deserve to die, so that you would be saved by him. But also, we take with us the bread and the cup out into the world around us, and we declare lordship so Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant, the, the new promise agreement that we make, that I'm a better Lord than you are. And so as we come and we submit ourselves to him, what we're saying is, Jesus, I want to align myself with you. I know I'm not going to do it perfectly, but again today, I'm going to align myself with you. I want to listen to the way that you talk to me. I want to do the things that you call me to do. I want to live in line with you so that I would be healed and I would bring healing to the world around me. And so as you take the bread and the cup, you're going to have an opportunity to declare that side as well. And so I'm going to invite those of you who are serving, if you would come and uh, take the elements around the room. And as you do, let me just explain a couple things about the way we'll do this today. Um, this, is a, this is a symbol that Jesus has given to us as his followers. Near the end of his life, he broke the bread of Passover handed it around and said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He held up the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant poured out for many. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And so as we come, we remember what Jesus has called us to do. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come.
to come and receive and declare, to uh, remember once again that he's given himself for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear at least this one thing really, really clearly. There's no if at the beginning of this promise. This is the promise of God where he says, I've done this for you. And you are already prepared to receive it. Wherever you are, whatever your story is, he's already done all the work. You're invited in. And so it may be the first time for you, or it may be uh, uh, the hundredth time you've heard it. But if you've never stepped into that relationship with him, he's inviting you to. There'll be some prayers on the screen, and one of those prayers is going to make that declaration. God, I'm ready to follow after you. And so if that's where you are, I'd invite you to pray that prayer and declare that truth. And then go and receive communion at one of these stations. If you're not ready to do that yet, there's another prayer that says, uh, God, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't get it yet. I heard a lot of stuff. I'm not sure where I'm at. Uh, would you just help me to know? And I would love for you to pray that prayer. And as you do, just kind of watch what's happening. The third thing is, if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, but there's an area of your life that you've intentionally held on to. I don't mean that you sin, because we all sin. I mean that you have said, you can be Lord of every area but this area. I'm holding on to this area. I'm going to ask you not to go to one of the stations, at least first, but to deal with that, to bring that before the Lord, because you have an opportunity to do that. And I'm going to ask you to do that in a specific way, as well as for any of you who are here uh, to do this in a specific way. Uh, today, uh, in a little bit different way, I'm going to invite you to come to the table or, and, or, to come to the altar and to receive prayer for healing. And so it may be that you come in with a specific thing that you're holding on to that you just need to bring to the Lord. It very well could be that's the area that God wants to touch and heal. Or it could be that you're here with a specific physical ailment that you just want to be prayed over. God is the God of healing, and we would love to pray that over you. We have oil at the altars, just as a simple symbol of the Holy Spirit. We'd love to be able to anoint you and pray for you and ask God to touch you and heal you. It may be that you have something uh, deeper emotionally that you've been wrestling with. You can come and you can bring that, and we would love to be able to pray over you that way. And it may be as simple as you saying, I believe that I'm called to be an agent of peace in the world around me. I, I want to be part of the healed community that's healing the community. And we would love to be able to anoint you and ask God to do that in you. And so whether you first come to communion and then come to an altar, or whether you come to an altar and then to communion, or whether you do one or the other or neither, this is a time for you to be able to experience his presence. So I'm just going to ask him to come and be present with us. And then if you'd like to come to be anointed, we'd love to do that. We'd invite you to come and receive communion and declare all of these things as we step back into the story of Exodus, remembering this is our story. Let me pray over us. Jesus, thank you. Your love for us is such that you would meet us exactly where we are. And then in the midst of the desert, you would offer us healing. God, many of us maybe weren't prepared for the desert that came on the other side of the Red Sea. We felt that victory was enough. And so, God, would you meet us in those surprising deserts and heal, bring healing. God, for those who are 
wrestling with physical ailments. Thank you that you are the God who heals physically as well. That you are the God who, um, by your stripes, we've been given healing. And so God, would you meet us at the table and at the altar? Would you do work that we know is not of us? It's only work that you can do. You've invited us in to uh, declare these truths over one another. And so help us to do that. So God, during this time, would you come and meet us by your spirit, minister to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.